This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays, a weekly virtual series of important medtech conversations. We have a full slate coming up in May. Discussions led by Master Control, iMark, and Intertech. For more information and to register, go to devicetalks.com. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salemi here, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, or if this is your first time listening, welcome. Great to have you. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to remind you that we've launched a new podcast. It's called Medtronic Talks, and you'll be able to find that on all podcast channels, as well as on our devicetalks.com website, where you can find our Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Go to Apple, Amazon, and Google. Subscribe to the Medtronic Talks Podcast. We'll be putting out at least two of those a month. We'll be talking with senior leaders at Medtronic about the many business units and about many other important issues and challenges and opportunities that Medtronic is taking on. So again, go to Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, Spotify, you name it, subscribe to Medtronic Talks. And while you're there, if you haven't already, subscribe to Device Talks Weekly. We have a couple of great interviews for you this week. We're going to open up with an interview I did with Eric Honrath. He is the president of Genninga North America. We talked about Genninga's recent approval for their ventilator lines, what it means for folks needing these devices. And of course, there are too many. COVID-19 maybe waning in the U.S., we hope so, and uh, in other parts of the world. But we're obviously seeing great troubles in India and elsewhere. So Eric Conroth is going to bring us up to date on what Genninga is producing in the ventilator space. We'll talk about some other issues facing the company as well, including its new policy on, uh, on virtual working, working from home. Later on, we'll run a great interview I did with Nadim Hashash Hararam. She is the president, CEO, and founder of Proximy, which is a terrific company that's bringing digital connection to the OR. It's enabling surgeons to uh, assist other surgeons across uh, many miles and across continents. Dr. Hashash Hararam is a uh, surgeon herself. She got into surgery to open up access to healthcare, and uh, her crossover in technolo- into technology has just... Uh, has just amplified that desire. So so she's a, a great guest with great stories and very, very happy to have her on the show. Now, without any further delay, I want to bring in my co-host, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Good to be here, Tom. Doing well, man. Doing great. well. Look what I wore for you, Chris. Look at the shirt I got on. So this is for you, baby. You're the Flash. You're, Flash. you're, you're blazing oh. fast. Not Flash Gordon. One of us. No. no. Flash Gordon. Flash the what? superhero. Oh, Flash. yeah, that guy too. Yeah. Superhero. Dear Sorry. God, man. <laughs> you're going super fast. You're not fighting Ming the Merciless. You're having a busy week. <laughs> what is what are you up to, Chris? Why are you you don't oh we don't mind but that, that goatee that you got has, has a Ming <laughs> a... look every once in a while. And like, today you're good. You shaved it down. You're you're doing well, man. But yeah. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. I, I did. I did shave the Ming cut, which still appears in some of our, <laughs> our merchandising go. literature. Uh, <laughs> like, can we can we not use that anymore? That was a that was a dark time in my life. And after we get and after we like grow Device Talks Weekly Podcast to 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 our point, the next goal is to conquer the universe, right? Yeah. Be awesome. Oh yeah. Oh, that's in the business plan. Universal yeah. conquest. Yeah. Huge money in yes. that. Huge money. 
So tell me about your week, Pharma 50. Tell our listeners what you're what you're doing. Yeah, we're uh, me and our uh, pharma editor Brian Bunts. We are in the thick of it and and uh, gathering data on the world's largest uh, pharmaceutical companies. So if uh, people follow Mass Device and Medical Design Outsourcing enough, you'd know that we do our big 100 feature every year mm-hmm. that uh, works, that uh, looks at our at the largest medical device companies in the world. Our, our senior editor, Daniel Kirsch, just like rocks that thing. We're going to be doing something like that on our pharmaceutical sites, uh, drug discovery and development, as well as the pharmaceutical processing world. So yeah, keep an eye out for it. We're, it's in the works. So we'll very cool. Giving, giving everybody a little teaser on it. Very cool. And I also wore this shirt because I watched the Zack Snyder Justice League cut. Wow. Last weekend. How was it? It was long, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take care of that that word there, but it's very long. But I I was inspired. I think this should be the longest podcast. I want I want a four hour and three minute podcast. So could you do could you do top fifty this week on New Market Newsmakers? I know you're busy, but is that possible? Or should we just stick to five? No, no. We'll just do five. That? I'm making okay. it. I'm making an executive decision. I'm an executive <laughs> editor. No, no. Uh, I, I'm an idea man. I can only throw them out. See what sticks to the wall. Okay. All right, we'll we'll, it's we'll stick with. Good. Always we'll going to throw with... out an idea, man. It's always good. <laughs> I, go. I appreciate the input, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> he really seems to appreciate my input. Such a good editor. Here you go, man. Well, let's start with uh, n- number five on the new Marcus Newsmakers list. Well, number five was uh, from uh, Brian Bunce. Uh, originally ran on drug discovery and development. It's uh, it's about uh, this is a tad spooky. Uh, they were scientists, <laughs> just a little, just a little spooky. They were scientists from the U.S. and China that um, injected some uh, human stem cells and uh, monkey embryos and uh, created a. Uh, human monkey hybrid that, that you know they're saying like hey we could test new drugs on this like you know like there's promise for organ transplants whatever but um yeah let, let's just say that there's some some ethical problems behind um behind what they did i'm getting planet of the apes thoughts in my head you know but we could also this might also factor into our our universal conquest strategy so it'd be great to have an army of human monkey hybrids don't you think I, you know, you should reach out to those scientists, Tom. I think I'm, I, I like the way you're thinking, man. That sounds that sounds great. You could get some wings on those things. We could have yeah. flying monkeys. I think we'd be wings, yeah, and but they could ride on horseback. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Love it, love it. Number four on the new market newsmakers. Genius, list. Please, Tom. Genius. Please, I'm always thinking, Chris. Always thinking. <laughs> Number number four on the list, we've got uh, Abbott launched a uh, AI-powered coronary imaging platform in uh, in Europe. Um, it just got C mark, and this uh, this platform's called. It's uh, powered by their uh, Ultrion 1.0 software, and uh, and yeah, it's just like you know getting some AI to bear on um, actually like uh, you know enhancing vis- visualization, you know de- detecting uh, severity of calcium-based blockages that you might see in uh, in blood vessels so just just hopefully some like new cool tech to help uh help you know you know spot potential uh you know coronary problems if we could give the monkeys ai we'd be in business as well so this is great a lot of great ideas i'm just i'm just feeding a lot of good stuff to you here (laughs) (laughs) and now it's time for our opening keynote conversation with eric honroth the president of getting north america well eric honroth welcome to the program Thank you, Tom. Very much appreciate joining you. So this is uh, an interesting time for companies in the, in the ventilator space. I mean, obviously here in the States, 
we saw our worst, I think, over the past 12 months. Hopefully, we're, we're tracking for, for better times, but obviously, COVID's not done with us yet. So anytime there's new approval for ventilators and such, I think it's it's interesting news. Uh, but before we get into uh, into the news you've had regarding ServoAir, we always like to find out a little bit about uh, about our guests and how they found their way into the medtech industry. So what was it that uh, about the industry that attracted you? So thank you, Tom. First of all, I have had a strong family history, whether former medical device and medical sales individuals, or in some cases, physicians as well. So from an early age, graduating from college, I had an affinity to get into medical. And it was one of those that uh, I just always was drawn to. And I think the opportunity to impact patients' lives and do so on a regular basis was always just something I found intriguing. Mm -hmm. And uh, at this point, I've now spent close to 25 years in this space. So uh, clearly, I I have enjoyed it. And it's something that uh, I seem to have a strong affinity toward and just uh, want to continue on just because of the the strong nature of what we're able to do and how we're able to impact patients' lives on a regular basis. That's great. And was your interest on the clinical side or has it always been on the business side? You know, a, a little bit of both. So yeah. I was uh, pre-med to start, and then I decided that uh, I didn't want to continue on and you know that long track record of, uh, of additional schooling. Mm-hmm. But that clinical background always intrigued me, and I always found it something that I wanted to pursue. And then when I got to know a little bit more of the med device and the med tech space, I said, okay, listen, I can combine a strong tech affinity to something that will allow me to continue to be a business person, right? So that marriage that uh, combination, if you will, was something that uh, was my, my calling. And I've, once again, just enjoyed being a part of it. Well, now, actually, I would love to, if you would just take a moment to introduce our listeners and me to uh, Gettinga. I mean, I, I, I obviously know the company name. I've seen you around, but I can't say I've spoken to some from someone there before. I know I haven't for the podcast. I'm not sure if I have in my writing. Uh, I know it's over 100 years old. I know it's been doing med tech for a long time, but uh, how do you tell, what do you tell people at uh, at events when you see them, if you stand six feet apart? What do you tell them about Gettinga and, and, and what it does? Absolutely. So, Tom, it's one of those companies that because we are an amalgamation of so many different acquisitions, people all know our products. They've used our products, are familiar with our products, and they've seen that these are definitely life-changing type of technologies. But a lot of times they don't know the getting a name, right? And and that's just a byproduct of a number of the acquisitions, whether that was uh, McKay in certain situations, Atrium, um, things to that degree. So they are familiar with a number of data scope, a number of the products that came from those acquisitions, but they don't always know getting up. But getting up to your point has got an over you know century of experience. They were founded in getting a Sweden. Um, they have been listed on the NASDAQ Stockholm large cap since 1993. And we are, as I said, approaching 3 billion in, in US dollar sales. At this point, we're right around uh, almost uh, 30 billion sex. So the conversion is close to 3 billion US dollars. Um, We've got almost 11,000 employees worldwide, and we are headquartered in Gothenburg, Sweden. So I think once again, people know us by our products, and they know us by a number of the the companies that we acquired, but they still struggle at times pronouncing the name and still understanding (laughs) exactly who we are. But I think you'll see a group that is committed to life-saving and game-changing type technologies and in, in a number of different types of fields. So hopefully that's what people will start to remember us by. Sure. And in full 
disclosure to the listeners, I did ask at this before we recorded uh, how to how to pronounce uh, getting us. So, uh, and I think I got it right in the first tries. But uh, but look, yeah, looking at the map at the, on your website, I mean, you're in China, North America, obviously, where you are are the head, uh, Brazil, and and over Europe and and a bit of the Middle East. So you're you're everywhere. How would we know you best? Let's speak about North America primarily. Uh, what are your principal businesses here? Sure. So I think how uh, much you'd understand us, you know, most notably is the ventilation side, right? Sure. Because of the COVID pandemic, people became, you know, front and center understanding just how absolutely important and critical ventilation was, especially high acuity ventilation, which is the area that we seem to excel at, uh, at a, at a uh, dramatic pace. But uh, you'll also see some very strong heart and lung machine technologies that are functioning in the ECLS space. Um, you will also see us in, in different types of vascular and surgical open areas. In some cases, the endoscopic vessel harvesting, which is uh, something used in cabbage procedures uh, in, in, in to have a uh, less invasive approach. So people will know us a lot from that as well. Also, Tom, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that, you know, where we were founded, as I said, getting a Sweden, we do a lot of the sterilize, sterilization equipment, um, a number of the lights, the tables, the booms, a number of things that are used within the SPD areas and the operating room areas as well. So uh, we do have a large extensive footprint in a number of different spots, as you can imagine. But as I said, probably the thing that most people would be drawn to because of the pandemic would be heart and lung machines as well as ventilation because those have been you know thrust to the the forefront for sure i think this is where we need to get into the past uh, 12 months so talk to bring me back if you would to january of, of 2020 or whenever it was that it was becoming clear to to you and getting a, that that some uh, some challenges were coming Sure. So we embarked on 2020. I'm thinking, listen, we've had some very you know, good years thus far, and we continue to, to grow and, and be productive in this space. And so we were not expecting a pandemic, of course. And so that uh, you know, some of our expectations and, and thoughts regarding what was going on in ventilation and other areas were reasonable. Um, they were stretched, but we didn't obviously expect uh, what we anticipated and happened you know, in, in the middle part of Q1. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can imagine, though, all of a sudden, um, as we started to better understand, you know, COVID and some of, of course, the challenging situations when it came to respiratory care, we knew that we were going to be front and center in, involved in this. And so we had some initial announcements. So to give you perspective, I'm in 2019, we manufactured 10,000 ventilators. That was uh, these were high acuity, high tech ventilators that that we provided in early March of 2020. We said, listen, uh, we can probably produce about 60 percent more. So about 16,000 ventilators we'll be able to do to in order to impact and try to help with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well. Uh, we knew that we needed to do more, right? Because at the time, I'm, I'm getting calls from a number of governors, not only in the Northeast, but across the U.S. I was getting phone calls in some cases from the White House and other areas looking to secure and procure ventilators for a myriad of different needs. And so we said, listen, and we are going to have to do more than 16,000. So at the end of the day, we produced 26,000 ventilators in 2020. That was a 160% increase. And once again, I will reinforce, and these are extremely complex pieces of equipment, right? These are not routine and simplistic type ventilators. In some cases that you've heard about, these are high acuity ventilators that are 
absolutely designed for patients on COVID, right? I think that's the case. So we were rather excited about what we were able to do because we realized that, you know, if a patient is going to be compromised and challenged, you better try to put them on one of our ventilators because, as I said, these are the type of technology designed to handle those challenging situations. So how were you able to uh, to more than double your, your production? Was it a matter of turning internal dials only, or did you create partnerships with uh, external partners? Yes. So uh, a combination of a number of factors. Uh, we utilized a number of uh, supply chain um, areas and such, in some cases with uh, General Motors, Ford, Apple, amongst a number of other companies that were help- helpful and wanting to contribute. We figured, listen, you know, some of those groups have robust supply chains. We realized that, you know, trying to uh, secure different types of components was not going to be easy. And so being able to assist and work with some of these companies, once again, that have a, a strong global outreach, absolutely paramount. We also realized and we were going to have to run three shifts and, and pretty much run three shifts 24-7 in order to accomplish this and, and do this in times of the pandemic. But as I said, the, the group in Solna, Sweden, which is where these ventilators are manufactured, they really stepped up. They were able to produce a you know outstanding amount of ventilators in a short period of time. And as I said, I would be remiss if I didn't say that you know some of these companies that also assisted and played an integral part, we couldn't have been more pleased, right? You saw a grouping of organizations come together Together, looking to try to fight this pandemic and try to make sure that we could have as many high acuity ventilators out there to serve the, the market and the, and the needs of the market. And how are you viewing the demand for, for 2021? Are you going back down to, uh, to 2019 levels or are you, are you managed to keeping things, uh, keeping things amped up? Yeah, so uh, Tom, I, re- I wish I had a crystal ball. You know, that would be extremely helpful. But sure. let me let me tell you what we've seen. So, you know, Q1 was a was a very strong quarter for us, and and you can imagine whether they were certain states or certain countries or still much in the grips of of COVID, right? And and we've seen that. You know, I, I have uh, Canada, North America, uh, which obviously continues to struggle, and there are parts of the world that also are having a you know a unique and, and difficult and challenging situation right now. Um, so we do expect that Q2 will also likely be high demand for ventilation and such. Now, what's going to happen in Q3 and Q4? Hopefully, um, as we see more of the world vaccinated and, and we see more states in the U.S. vaccinated, we do think that we will get back down to more of the 2019 levels. But at this point, and we're just not sure, right? As I said, this uh, unfortunately with this pandemic, we have seen it, it. It seems to continually rear its ugly head just when you think that you're out of the woods. And so I think all of us are, we have to remain vigilant. We have to remain you know, open-minded and try to trust that we're not sure what the market is fully going to look like. But I do think Q3 and Q4, we will likely see some more normal behavior like 2019, but uh, not 100% sure at, at this point, as you can imagine. Well, let's talk a bit about about, uh, about your news, you received uh, US FDA clearance, uh, 510K clearance for, for three products uh, related to your servo ventilator platform. Take us through, uh, through the, the three approvals. Sure. So first and foremost, as you mentioned, uh, on the, we got uh, 510K approval on the Servo U 
and the servo N. So those are two of our mainstay ventilators that we are mm -hmm. really, very excited about. And then also we've got the next generation of the servo UMR ventilators. So it was one of those that uh, gave us an opportunity to do a number of different things with software upgrades, as well as get into the MRI market with a product that we knew was going to be best in class and something that we were very excited about. So I'm happy to go into more detail on each of these, but uh, that gives you kind of a uh, quick update on what we received approval on. Well, let's talk about uh, first the, the the servo U and, and what is the difference between the servo U and servo N ventilator? Sure. So really, really easy on that. So the servo U is, is one that that is, is our mainstay ventilator. That's the one that most of our patients will receive specifically mm -hmm. the COVID patients. And, and you can imagine the servo N is the neonate ventilator. Okay. Again. So that is designed for neonatal use. So it is uh, very similar to the servo U, but as I said, it has functionality and components that are for a, a much, uh, you know, more compromised group that you need to be that much more cognizant of. So that's the main differentiator between the U and the N. So with, with the U, why, you've said a few times that it's, uh, it's specifically uh, made for, or at least it's, it's the, the ventilator that, that someone in a with a serious case of COVID would, would be on. What is, uh, what is unique about the servo U ventilator that makes it uh, the perfect, perfect uh, tool or, 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 or therapy for someone suffering from serious case of COVID? Sure. So I think that uh, when you look at, you know, the just the details on what we have on the ventilation side is that, you know, we are a global leader in mechanical ventilation. And that mm -hmm. is something that we have done, you know, for a period of time. And so what we've done with that and these ventilators are designed and tailored for the acute care segment, right? That is really, as I said, what is uh, our, probably our strongest segment. Uh, we have a history of firsts when it comes to personalized ventilation treatment, mm -hmm. and we are constantly looking to innovate our products and solutions to make sure that we enhance patient care when it comes to that. So I, I'd say that you know what you'd see with the any of the servos is that they take both the clinician as well as the patient's best needs at heart and look to try to design a ventilation opportunity that is going to benefit them. So they are extremely customizable and they're able to handle a lot of the challenges that you would see in a COVID patient, right? It's it's not one of those ventilators that, um, as I said, is, is uh, how do I put it? It's not easy to use, but mm -hmm. when, when, when you have been trained on it and, and when you know the complexity of, and what it provides, um, it's able to take care of a number of the unique challenges that you see in a in a COVID type of environment. And what is uh, significant or why is it significant that you have uh, the ability now to, for, for a patient using or on the servo U to, to undergo a, an MRI? Why, why is that so essential? Sure, so that is an important area and, and you can imagine. So it's, it's uh, one of those things that when, uh, when we've got an MRI platform, you need to have a familiar interface. So something that you can imagine, uh, and with a whole host of different ventilators out there, if a customer has a steep learning curve associated with it, that is difficult because it's going to require training and, and getting the staff up and up, up and running and getting them more you know, comfortable and such in this. So a familiar interface, which is what the, the servo MR is going to provide for them. It also supports all of the patient groups. So you're going to be able to take care of the servo ends and the servo U's and the servo I's because it is supporting all the patient groups. So that's extremely important. 
Finally, now what you're going to see is that it's got flexible positioning. So it can be placed on either side of the MR table. So it's going to be able to be you know, positioned in the right area. It also has a magnetic field indicator, which shows safe distance to the scanner, as well as alerts you if it's too close. So it does mm -hmm. provide a lot of functionality specifically designed for you know, those MR procedures. And so going forward, or do you have any other um, approvals that you're waiting for in regarding to the, the ventilator business? Any other news uh, we should be anticipating later this year? You know, Tim, we, we do have a robust pipeline of different type of technology that we continue to move forward with. So I will uh, say that uh, we are not resting on our laurels and <laughs> we're not done yet. Um, so a number of things, hopefully, that you're going to continue to see. But uh, this is an area that we believe wholeheartedly in. We think that, uh, as I said, it's essential, specifically to our customers and our patients. So we uh, we suspect that we're going to see a lot more activity from, from getting a, moving forward, especially on the ventilation side. Great. And, and finally, just two sort of culture questions. I'm, I'm just curious. Sweden, of course, took a different approach earlier in, in the pandemic as to how to manage the disease. I wondered, did, did, did your, your company's headquarters being in Sweden, did it, did it create any sort of uh, different messaging for, for company uh, employees in different locations? Or, or, or uh, what, was the, what was the company's broader response to, uh, to, re, to the, the COVID pandemic? Sure. So great question. Now, our main priority was to ensure that we help to save and improve as many lives as possible and also keep our employees and clinicians safe and healthy. I think that, you know, that's our mantra. You know, mm -hmm. we have this passion for life uh, uh, promise that uh, that all getting employees are, are very familiar with. And, you know, whether it was Sweden, whether it was other parts of Europe, whether it was North America, South America, Asia, I think all of us were trying to better understand and come to grips with what the pandemic actually was. So, you know, the each each country and each state, if you will, in the U.S. had a different approach. Um, and I think that we always took a pragmatic one and said, listen, you know, safety first, try to to do what is absolutely needed and essential for our clinicians and for our patients. And hopefully then we can produce those type of outcomes. So that, that was the case, but you know, the uh, Swedish roots are, are usually pragmatic roots and uh, <laughs> they were you know, try, trying to understand. And of course, try to do everything that we could um, even though, you know, global demand, you know, for a number of our products was just uh, absolutely phenomenal as you can imagine. So I think that, you know, the Swedish roots alongside with a number of other individuals in the company hopefully we were able to make an, you know, a dramatic impact and and uh, continue to do so uh, and just final question again related to culture uh, last uh, month you uh, introduced a long-term flexible workplace approach yes like, again as a result of uh, more people working from home yeah. uh, it seems to work and it sounds like it's something that you're going to keep in place for for a, a time at least what what is the can bring us up to date on that please Absolutely. And so um, we're, we're excited about this one. This is one of the situations that we realized as a result of the pandemic that we could be equally as productive working remotely on a regular basis, right? I think there are still going to be certain functional areas that need to be in the office on a occasional basis, but a large portion of this company is going to be able to work remotely. So we have given most of our employees the opportunity uh, to do so, and we are going to continue to do that. And we do feel like, similar to some of the large you know, tech companies that we've seen on the West Coast mm -hmm. that have favored that approach, now we're, we're very similar. And we think that this is something that as we move forward, this is going to be a competitive advantage. We think that people are going to be drawn to the culture of getting up and realize that, listen, you know what? 
being able to work remotely, being able to work a little bit more safely, and in some cases, having that flexibility, which I think uh, all of us uh, in, in North America definitely enjoy, is something that we want to be firmly ingrained in this culture. So I'm, I'm excited that the company has taken the lead, and, and I would, once again, equate us to a number of the uh, uh, larger tech companies that have also moved forward in that direction, and this is something here to stay for us. So we're, we're excited, and uh, we're looking forward to what this is going to uh, do to our organization. Excellent. Well, great conversation, Eric. Thank you for all the work you did during the uh, pandemic and producing those important ventilators. And uh, thanks for uh, not yourself personally, of course, but but getting up. <laughs> and, uh, and thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Absolutely, Tom. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you again. Let us carry on. Chris Newmarker, what is number three on the Newmarker's Newsmakers? You know, number three on the list, we have Stryker. They, they've made a kind of like a marketing partnership with minor league baseball. Uh, so they're going to be, uh, they're the official smart robotics joint replacement partner of minor league baseball. So I, I always find, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I always find uh, like here in, you know, here in the Twin Cities, we got the St. Paul State. It's great to, mm-hmm. great, more affordable way to go and just, just watching baseball and, you know. I'm a big fan yeah, of minor league food, baseball. But there you go. So you could go and, you know, get your, get your hot dog, you know, maybe, uh, maybe they're roasting some s'mores over a fire in the back and you can find out about a knee replacement. So just. That's great. So are these for the old people like me attending the sports or are they, would they be providing these knee implants for the, the players who tend to be younger? I would yeah. Hope I mean. You know, I think I think this is more of a. Uh, I mean, like, like I mean, they're really talking about uh, like uh, that they're gonna. This seems more like marketing, like more for the fans. Like they're gonna have gotcha. like own the walk game day events. You know, fans at events get you know participate in activities around a Mako oh, platform. Yeah. You're gonna have Makos on site, perhaps displaying the company. That would be cool. Wow. Oh, all right. Now it's there. Even- we go. Even even more reason to go to a minor league ball game. All right, great yeah, job. Check Stryker. out a Mako robot. Yeah, Striker uh, and minor league baseball, two of my faves. So I uh, like, great. but I mean, I mean, knee replacements don't go really well with seven inning stretches, though, right? I mean, I no. wouldn't. No, that wouldn't. Nor nor do they go well with with sitting in tiny seats for now. Although minor league, yeah. Minor league ballparks tend to be more comfortable than Fenway Park. But a anyway. Mako could give you better outcomes, maybe. And so that's why you should, you know, appreciate it even more if you're finding out about it at a minor league baseball game. There's lots of potential here. Total uh, upside. I love it. All it's right. Good. Number good two, on, number two on the list, Chris Newmarker. Number two on the list, uh, we've got uh, Medtronic receiving an FDA breakthrough designation for their uh, imprint ablation uh, catheter kit. So uh, the, the full story ran on our uh, sister site, medical tubing and extrusion. Uh, but you know, this is uh, you know, you know, basically, uh, you know, like you know, like some some advances for less invasive treatment and you know, and treating. Uh, you know, lung malignancies. So, uh, you know, like uh, accuracy delivering microwave and energy to uh, targeted lung lung lesions, you know, and it already has a, uh, the kit already has a CE mark, but it's not yet available in the U.S., but, you know, breakthrough device designation uh, gives you all kinds of, you know, you know, like um, fast track uh, benefits with uh, with FDA and, you know, and all, as well as like reimbursement, you can like get some, you know, reimbursement like benefits with Medicare through uh, getting that fast track, uh, that breakthrough nod from FDA. So, so yeah, some, some interesting news on, you know, the catheter uh, delivered med tech uh, front from Medtronic. Excellent. 
Great news yeah. from Medtronic. Now let's bring it home. Chris Newmarker, what is number one on the Newmarker's Newsmakers list? On the list, it involves uh, DJO, uh, mm-hmm. which is part of Colfax. They acquired a company called uh, MedShape. And uh, MedShape, uh, they've, uh, they develop super elastic nickel titanium shape memory alloy, and they've got other uh, shape memory polymer technologies. Uh, you know, DGO, DJO, if uh, people aren't aware, is like one of the largest orthopedic device companies in the world. So, so this is uh, some, they're, you know, it looks like they're, uh, you know, acquiring some, uh, some neat materials technology that could uh, help them, uh, you know, you know do, do more innovation. You know, someone recently did a, a huge spread on orthopedics companies, Chris. Who, who was that? Oh yeah, that would that would be me. Oh, that that's be, right. Yes, yes. yes I, I'd encourage people if you want to go to Medical Design Outsourcing Mass Device, you can check out our uh, ten largest orthopedic uh, device companies in the world uh, that I assembled. And yes, there's a whole whole thing about how DJ, DJO is doing and what they're about in there. Great list. And I actually yeah. do have reached out, I think, to DJO to get uh, CEO Brady Shirley on the on the show. So hopefully we'll we'll hear back yeah, and that'd be great. get them on the program. It's an interesting period because Colfax is, um, you know, actually like splitting in half and the ortho business is going to be standalone. So, uh, you know, that, that'll be, uh, you know, so it's, it's some neat times over there. They're probably going to get more focused than if they're a standalone business. Great job, Chris Newmarker. Now let's bring our closing keynote conversation. Again, I had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Nadine Hashash Haram, the CEO of Proximy. Well, Dr. Nadine Hashash Haram, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I've been hearing the Proximy story for a long time, uh, and it's uh, <laughs> exciting to, to have you on here. You you do excellent work in the promotional department. You're you're out there, not <laughs> only up, partly I'm sure due to your hard work, but just the timeliness of of the technology. We always start these these interviews though, just looking back a bit. Uh, how did you find your way into into surgery? You actually you're a surgeon. How did you decide to enter the medical field and become a surgeon? So it's a great question. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, it's going to come across very unusual that a, a, a child at the age of 14 realized that they wanted to be a surgeon. But but that's my story. I, from a from a young age, my family is originally from the Middle East. And so I spent a bit of time in my teens there. I was born in San Diego and then um, spent about eight years in, in my kind of, yeah, teen years around the Middle East. And I'd seen some of the challenges around, you know, inequity and access to healthcare. And I'd also seen some of the challenges post-conflict. And you see, um, unfortunately, the, the, the consequences or the sequelae of this uh, of conflict. So I saw a lot of patients who had suffered blast injuries and, and burns injuries and others. And that really um, influenced me and influenced how I looked at my, you know, what impact I wanted to make in the world. Mm-hmm. And it imprinted on me in that young age of, you know, what did I want to do with my life? And I started to imagine this opportunity where I could be a reconstructive surgeon. So I could try and improve um, and restore form and function and give these individuals a better quality of life. And so that really took me on the path uh, from a young age to become a reconstructive plastic surgeon. I kind of remember around that time, there was a good friend of ours of the family who was a, a surgeon in New York, and he used to come and do a lot of these, you know, capacity building and, and mission type surgeries in the region. And he invited me to come spend the day with him. So I got the chance, I was 15 or 16 at the time, got the chance to go with him and spend the day seeing the work that he was doing. Mm -hmm. And I still remember coming home that day, just so energized and telling my mother, this is exactly what I want to do with my life. So that was the path. And I've been a surgeon for 10 years plus now. And my main clinical practice has been around breast and pelvic cancer reconstruction. That's fascinating. And it's interesting that your your interest was in... uh 
and increasing access to healthcare by being a surgeon and you've sort of you've more than extended that and amplified that with with the creation of Proximy. Uh, I want to get into into the company in a moment, but I, I want to understand just a bit of the transition from your being a surgeon. I, I understand surgeons who create new medical devices. They're in the they're working mm-hmm. on it. They can see something that can do something better. You are doing something similar, but or you've done something similar, but through technology. Did you have a background in technology? Did you know, oh, it wouldn't be impossible to create access to my surgical procedure for someone across the world? I mean, that would seem to be just a completely different discipline than, than reconstructive surgery. Yeah, very different. And I'll, I'll probably kind of say two things around that. One is my dad was a computer engineer and I, you know, I was a, a gamer as a kid. So I was naturally drawn or comfortable, I guess, within that space. But more importantly, I think it comes from the why. You know, what took me from being a surgeon to thinking about setting up Proximy? I spent about 10 years during my surgical career involved in any way possible to scale expertise. So on the one hand, I was involved in many global health initiatives, trying to look at building capacity and sustainability in surgical care around the world. And I also worked with many device companies. I I used to be a KOL for about three or four companies, and I did a Mm -hmm. lot of the kind of product launch translational work for them to try and accelerate, you know, people using their devices and and delivering that care to patients. Through that experience, I recognized that fundamentally we have this challenge in surgery. The operating room is undigitized. It's analog. The ability to scale new products and scale new techniques is very friction. It's slow. It takes time. And I started to think about this environment where operating rooms could be digital, could be connected and could help us scale that. And I think it came on the back of my firsthand experience having traveled so much with device companies as well as my my personal passion, which is around global health. It became clear that this was really a problem everywhere not just somewhere. The ability to address variability, address access and address scale at pace, at the rapid pace that we really needed to do it in healthcare was not going to be possible to do it in any traditional model of care that we'd adopted in surgery over you know, decades and centuries, which was this communication, collaboration, co-presence that if we're together in a room, mm-hmm. we can scale. And, and, and I knew that, that the exponential shift had to be delivered differently. And so how exciting could the intersection of innovation, technology and healthcare be in that digital experience and what could that do to allow me and many, many other surgeons and healthcare workers and surgical teams augment and accelerate their capability in helping others. So how does that, uh, how do you practically actually begin creating the project that leads to the the founding of Approximy in in 2016? Was that when you started or 2015? Yeah, 2016. I started to look at what are the, what are the core functionalities? Because you know, starting off by saying, I'm going to build a connected digital operating room. It's a big ambition. And the, the challenge you, you need to think about is that, you know, healthcare is complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, the operating room is complex in that it is a lot of stakeholders involved in that environment. And so to move from nothing, which is where we were very analog and undigital to a complete connected surgical care, which is the, the vision of Proximy, you needed to take a, a step-by-step approach. And that step-by-step sequential approach needed to think about what are some of the core components that we need today? And then how do we start to build value across that experience? And the immediate core component is how can I connect with another clinician? How do I virtually transport myself so that I'm not having to jump on a plane every time I need to get somewhere to scale expertise or or hop in a car or a train to do that? And how do we make sure that that experience is just beautiful? 
It is, it is of the highest quality and it is delivered for surgical experience. So building and what we have at Proxmi was, okay, we're gonna build a highly um, optimized communication platform layered with augmented reality. Why? Because in order to be in that environment in surgery, it has to be immersive. It has to be ultra low latency. You know, if you're sitting on a call and there's delay and lag, it doesn't give for that seamless experience. And the third thing is it had to be uh, multidimensional. If I'm getting involved in a case and I can only see one or two views, it doesn't really give me the context of what's going on in that room. But if I'm able to bring together a single platform that gives me three to four views, ultra low latency with minimal bandwidth requirement, high quality user experience that's designed for that environment, then you're on a winner. You're already mm -hmm. starting to win hearts and minds. You're building footprint. You're getting surgeons to use it and adopt it. Once you get to the point where you have believers in this future, surgeons using this technology, you can then start to really layer in the other features that we think are critical for that connected surgical care. But I can say, and I, I really want to kind of say this with my surgical hat on, is that it's about value. Mm -hmm. It's not about the novelty of a technology stack. I, I don't know at any point that we talk about what stack we used or what type of technology code was used. What we're talking about is how do we change this, the paradigm in surgery? How do we connect and accelerate skill acquisition and the delivery of care? And how do we make sure that patients get the best care the first time every time? Oh, understandable. I'm always just curious though how in the actual creation of, of the company and, and how you find the right partners to work with to, to help you develop the technology. Uh, did you did you find a, a technology partner to work with initially to help you sort of craft out what needed to be done? Yeah, it's it's. It, I mean, the 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 kind of interesting part of the story is I I never really set out to start a company. When we started <laughs> off, it was uh, everyone says it was that. Really, they say that I know, but it's true. <laughs> the idea. The idea was in 2014, really, and um, it's 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 kind of special because the anniversary of that specific day was um, was a couple of days ago. Um, oh, I, I, I actually have a picture from that um, from that day in the operating room, and I, I was just very frustrated. Like, why can't I connect with others and, and do this differently? And I, you know, strapped like an iPad to something with some tape, and I was like, we need to find a different way to do this. But <laughs> um, but in in all honesty, I thought, look, I'm passionate about this. Let me see if I can you know, solve this problem. So found a, a, an outsourced group that we that I worked with and they built a minimum viable product. And being a, a doctor and a scientist, you know, I wanted evidence. Mm -hmm. So I just, I deployed it in a couple of centers around the world where I had colleagues who were willing to, to test it out with me. So great surgeons at Riverside and Peru who worked together for cleft lip and palate surgery. We had surgeons in the Middle East. We had surgeons in, uh, in parts of Vietnam. And for like two years, we were just testing and aggregating evidence about the value of this technology. It was incredible to see the skill acquisition that was happening, the pace. We were almost having the time it would take to acquire skills and, and accelerating the ability to treat more patients because you have more capacity and, and, you know, and, and skills to do it in a much more effective way. And it was only in 2016, so two years later, that CNN caught wind of what we were doing, oh, wow. what I was doing. Uh, and published a small article uh, that said, could this be the future of surgery? So it was April, April or May 2016. And at that point, what was my little secret now was kind of public. And so I, I sat down with the family and said, look, I think I'm going to start a company. I think we're going to do this uh, at scale. So that was the birth of Proxima actually started a bit earlier, but officially, I guess, 2016. That's amazing. Today. Wow. 
That's uh, that's uh, for CNN to stumble upon what you're doing is uh, yes. <laughs> for sure. So that that's great. I, I want to understand you. You gave a presentation. We'll link to some of the t- TED talks, uh, but was eye opening for me. I think this was in 2017. Where where we we we've been talking about technologies like yours sort of in the context of COVID. It's woken up people like me to to all these attempts to to, to connect the, the operating room. So it's a to people outside the operating rooms, uh, but you were focusing on this in 2017, just the the, the shortage of surgeons that, that's coming, and you gave some really eye-opening statistics. Five billion people in the world lack safe surgical access. You mentioned Sarah Leone having 10 qualified surgeons, and even in the U.S., we need a, a 100,000 surgeons in the U.S. by 2030 just to maintain our, our care. So this is a problem, I think, like with so many other things, COVID has merely shined a bright light on it and maybe accelerated its development. But Talk a bit about about the the problem that we're facing in just ensuring that uh, that we have enough surgeons to to treat the people to provide the treatments that are necessary. I think it's a really important point, and I think you know what used to frustrate me was two things. One is that you know it's incredible that and and shocking that the number is just so big. You know today that the two thirds of the world's population is lacking access to safe surgery. Eighteen point six million people are dying for lack of access to surgery, which is more than you know HIV, malaria, and TB combined. The other bit that is always kind of an eye-opening bit to me is this misconception that lack of access to surgery or variability to surgery is a problem of the global south or part of developing markets or you know however you know people choose to describe it. I can tell you having worked in the UK and having many colleagues who work in the US as well, variability in care and variability in access is a problem everywhere. You know, today in the UK, you're 14 times more likely to suffer complications following colon surgery between one hospital and another. Mm-hmm. And in the US, you know, you're almost three times more likely to die from complications in surgery between the lower performing and the higher performing hospitals. This is all evidence that's out there. It's just not, you know, we haven't shone a light on it, but it is an important piece. The second bit I would say is just the the sheer volume of exciting and new products that are coming to market. If we look at the robotic space, the cardiac, mm-hmm. interventional, there's just a huge plethora of new devices coming. How do we ensure that we're going to be able to scale the skill acquisition and the delivery of these products in a timely manner to patients that need it? I remember working with device companies. It would take months to get surgeons trained just with the logistics of trying to get them to places to get the information to them, to be able to follow up and support them on their first few cases. It was all happening in this very disconnected way. Now looking at these challenges, again, I would look at them in three buckets. One is lack of access. Mm -hmm. Two is we've got a lot of great centralized teaching hospitals and then a lot of peripheral centers that don't have all the expertise needed on those sites. And then three, just the amount of new devices and new products we need to learn about and accelerate. To solve that and to bridge that gap has to be digital. It has to be connected. It has to, find, it has to be a different way. And that, that's really the kind of the vision behind it. And it's always a great opportunity for me to share that because of that firsthand experience as a surgeon. And I've lived through all of those. I've seen it all. And, and that intimate knowledge of those challenges has really propelled the desire to try and solve this. And, and what I always say is that a siloed approach cannot solve a systems problem. And what we've seen historically is a lot of siloed point solutions trying to address this challenge. We need a connected solution, mm-hmm. a, a connected platform that can bring together all the right technologies and solutions needed to connect the dots and make sure that we can deliver that and hopefully make a difference. I mean, 5 billion people, that has to change. We can't accept that anymore. 
No, that, that's a great point. And, and you're right. We focus so much on innovation and creating new products and we're, we're the industry is, is developing these tools and trying to force them down a, a spigot that's getting narrower and narrower and narrower as if we're, if we're losing the ability to the, the surgeons who can perform the care. Uh, and we're to your point, we're also missing the bigger picture. All these people who aren't getting care at all. Uh, it's just an untapped market. So we'll ask, I'll ask one COVID question. What has the past year been like for you? Is it fair to say that it has really accelerated your development, really shown a, a bright light on, on the problem or were you, you were on track anyway, and, and I, I and people like me finally caught up to CNN and became aware of what you were of what you were up to. No, it's it's a great question. I mean, firstly, it is it's always um, really a privilege uh, to have the opportunity to be a disruptor and a thought leader that's creating a new space. And you know, looking back at 2014, 2015, 2016, you know, building those ideas and pushing towards it uh, in an environment that perhaps wasn't even thinking about it, let alone being receptive to it. You always think, you know, you know, at least from where I was sitting, it's like, I'm going to keep banging on about this because I know it's going to make a difference and we're going to be in this new world, in this digital world very soon. And, you know, as we started to build out in 2016, 2017, my focus at the time was starting to build thought leadership because it's really about winning hearts and minds, you know, trying to change behavior in an environment that's been historically very traditional surgery and saying, look, we're going to do things very, very differently. is hard. And so you need to build that thought leadership and try and get the, the, the buy-in for the value, for what you, the value you're trying to bring. Now, when we started and really kind of launched commercially, which was in 2019, we were already starting to see an acceleration of adoption. So, you know, quarter on quarter, we were doubling and we were seeing an excitement enthusiasm. But I'd be lying if I sat here and said COVID didn't have a kind of an accelerant impact. I think what, was hap- what we would have seen happen over a two to three year period happened in about two to three months. And it accelerated the change, the behavior change that was needed. Mm-hmm. And we saw it in our numbers. I mean, as I said, we were sort of doubling and, and kind of growing in a really consistent way. And just at, just before COVID, you know, our team was about 20 to 30 people globally. When COVID hit, we accelerated our users by 10 times, our footprint wow. across hospitals from 30 to 300. And we went from 1,000 approximated events to 10,000 approximated events. So we saw across multiple endpoints an acceleration of adoption and usage. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, COVID has been a really difficult time for so many people and their families. And it's just been heartbreaking, having also spent some time on the front line myself, um, managing that to see it firsthand. But definitely the silver lining in some of that, it is it has really accelerated the change that should have that should be happening. And, and I'm excited to see where the future is going. I can tell you, we won't go back to the way things were. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely seeing that in the discussions we're having with our strategic partners, with our medical device partners, our big hospital partners. They're looking at this as the future. This is not just a, we're going to use it for a few months during COVID and then we'll stop. This is the future of how they want to shift their businesses and how they want to look to unlock value for themselves, but all their stakeholders as well, be it the surgeons, the hospital systems they work with, um, as do we. Looking at the, your website, your the groups you're collaborating with. I mean, you've got you've got Cleveland Clinic, you've got uh, Abbott, Medtronic, Stryker. I'm just watching it scroll through Smith and Nephew. You've got all, all the big names. That growth that has happened over the past year has it been primarily from what percentage of that growth is is the medical device companies connecting their their sales professionals to the OR? Is that a business that you were counting on as well, or is that something that became a new business for you? 
and how big are you counting? How big will the, how large a piece of that business will be at a viewers going forward? That came up badly, but you know what I'm trying no, to say. No, it's a, yeah, really important question. So <laughs> first, what I would say is that um, surgery and, and the experience in an operating room is, is not a moment in time. And it's not a specific use case. You, you know, our vision of the use of Proximy encompasses, you know, all of the above. It's rep support, it's case coverage, it's education and training, it's accreditation, it's the continuum of a surgeon's experience. And so what we often describe as moving away from a see one, do one, teach one to prepare, perform, and perfect. Because throughout your career as a surgeon, you will go through that continuum of preparing either on a new technique or a new device, you will then want to perform your cases and having some support, virtual proctor, virtual mentor, virtual coach is hugely valuable. But then being able to have a recording of that case in a Mm -hmm. HIPAA and GDPR compliant way and then go back and review that is hugely valuable. And so we have proximity examples across those use cases. We've supported device companies to to, bring their reps digitally to operating rooms. We've supported surgeons in different hospitals and health systems to deliver care to patients. We've supported U.S. health systems and accreditation around areas like robotic surgery and others. And we've supported the delivery of care in critical cases where there are a handful of experts around the world that need to have, that need to come together to deliver that. And so I, I see it more as a continuum, but to kind of answer specifically, question, the med device business is a, is, a, is a key part of our business. It was key before COVID and has undoubtedly accelerated and grown significantly since COVID and is one that will continue to play a large role. Proximy is bringing value across their ecosystem, whether it's rep support, sales and marketing, R&D, and and everything in between. So we see it as as a key bit today, and it will continue to be a key part of the future of Proximy as well. So let's two more future questions. The future of the need you're trying to fill. How does how do the next few years play out? I know you've you've got this mapped out. Are, are we going to see increased adoption of this type of connected technology? And what does that look like? There's so many groups out there. Some of the co- par- companies you're partnered with have their own digital surgery platforms. Uh, there's many other companies that are doing something similar. To what you're doing, or at least presenting their, themselves that way, uh, can the can can you all find a place in the health system? Is there going to be a, a a thinning of the of the herd? And can hospitals and the infra, healthcare infrastructure really support what you're you're trying to do? Or, or are you sort of putting a digital bandaid on top of uh, a gaping wound in, in healthcare? I'll I'll start by answering the last question and then come backwards. I mean that is the key bit. You know when. Proximy has been designed by clinicians for clinicians because we intimately understand the wound, the inside of the beast, you know, with the challenges that are happening. It can be misperceived or misunderstood, you know, when a, if a technology company is coming to try and solve a challenge, but they haven't spent time at the front line understanding all the complexity of it. And, and healthcare and surgery is complex with a lot of different stakeholders. And so Proximy's approach is definitely not to be that digital band-aid. And I think you know, from, from our point of view and me, you know, personally as a surgeon, I want to try and address that through a connected approach. As I said earlier, point solutions that on the outside appear like they are solving a system challenge traditionally fall short. Within, within six months, a year, two years, they fall short and they get parked to the side and people move on. We want to take a different approach. We want to work with systems and we work with a number of hospital IDNs and health systems to think through how do we help with our technology and with our solution to continue to layer in 
solutions that are going to address those multiple challenges. And as I said earlier, what Proxima is really focused on is unlocking value for all those stakeholders, whether it's around in the moment connectivity, whether it's around quality and accreditation, whether it's around becoming more data-driven and digitized in a, in a sense that's gonna enable us to understand our operating room you know, environment better and be more effective and more efficient around it. And so that is definitely the approach that we choose to take. And so I would say that we're just scratching the surface of the potential of where this real connected surgical care is going to be. And it's a continuum of that pre and trend post-op that you will see over time connected and digitized in one continuum. In terms of what we see in the, in, the, in the landscape, I mean, I can tell you having been a commissioner here on the Future of Surgery Commission, so we wrote uh, a government um, asked white paper about what does the future of surgery look like? Mm -hmm. And that was an incredible piece of work because we spent about a year interviewing pretty much everyone in the industry from strategics, device companies, clinicians, accrediting bodies and others to really understand how they perceive that environment. And within that was this concept that the future of the operating room will be digital. And so it's really about solutions that have the agility and the inclusivity that can be that can scale. And Proxime today is a global platform. We can scale and be in hospitals within a matter of weeks. We are hardware agnostic. So we don't create that cumbersome real estate footprint that can often hinder the ability to scale. Mm -hmm. And we are adaptable to any device that, that hospitals and clinicians have. And those are purposeful design decisions that were taken in order to support that. And as we look at the ecosystem, you know, I think this is a very, you know, there are 330 million operations that happen every year. So it's a large and vast space. And, and you know, from my point of view, it's exciting when other people are in the space as well, because it just reinforces and validates the importance and the value for these solutions. And I'm sure there'll be many interesting and in future potential collaborations and you know, companies working together to, to try and really combine forces and really address that gaping wound that you described. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So do you think we have the technology now to solve some of the problems you've laid out uh, in the shortages we have, or do we need to bear down and, and develop this idea even further? Absolutely. I mean, today, Proxime has published over 25 peer-reviewed journal articles that have demonstrated the value. We've demonstrated that Proxime can, you know, double care provision in half the time, not compromise on quality. We've demonstrated that Proxime is equivalent to having an individual, an expert, or a rep in the room. We've demonstrated an acceleration of skill acquisition mm -hmm. and also demonstrated for device companies the ability to accelerate their velocity by 50 60% because we're able to be more effective, more efficient, and augment their, their team's capacity. Rather than having to spend all their time traveling to different parts of the, the country, they can do a lot more um, from their own laptop. Mm -hmm. So that is, that, that is where the future is. And you know, for me, it was very important to put evidence behind everything we do. Right. And the final question, again, about the future, but about the future of Proxima. You raised a $38 million round just recently, I think just last month. We got a lot of uh, names in there: F Prime, Questa, Eight Roads, Maverick Ventures. Some of them are sort of cross. They're they're big investors. They kind of could be crossover investors. Uh, is this a comp? Well, uh, before I ask my question, are you still practicing surgery, or are you a full time CEO now? I I do. I still keep my hand in the clinical practice. I do mm -hmm. a couple of days a month, and I think that is something I'm, I'm really I am excited and proud of because it allows me to stay close to that intimate knowledge of that, you know, that wound at the front line. And it okay. enables me to really continue to get experiences and share knowledge with my colleagues and peers across the world. 
And now my question is, so what do you want Proxima to be? Is this a company that you want to have it be larger? Do you want to take it public? Uh, is there a SPAC offering in the future? What is what is Proxima's future look like in your mind? I mean, where where we stand, you know, and, and as, you know, looking back at even that moment in 2016, you know, I want to build a big business that's making uh, this building legacy and impact. We want to, we want Proxima to be the solution that is digitizing and, you know, uh, in, in engaging every operating room and every cath lab and every, you know, uh, ambulatory daycare center anywhere in the world. And so we're on that, you know, on a very big trajectory to try and achieve that. And we're definitely excited about numerous partnerships and collaborations that are going to help us get there. Do you enjoy being a CEO? I do. I do very much. I enjoy building teams and building great culture. And it's been super exciting at Proxima to grow from, you know, 30 to close to 100 people in less than a year. And what I really enjoy is, is just being able to harness fantastic talent, build a really positive culture of being able to build an exciting business commercially, but more importantly, being able to build a business that's actually going to impact everyone. Because Tom, I mean, everyone will have at some point in their lifetime, a procedure. You know, I think there was a study in the US that showed that in your lifetime, you'll have on average nine procedures, however minor or major they may be. And so surgery affects all of us, affects us, our loved ones, our families, our colleagues. And so to have an opportunity to, to make an impact on, on as many people as possible is something we all strive for. And we really want to be that engine that connects the best of human expertise with the most advanced solutions and technologies to change lives. That's great. And I'm sure if everyone listening thinks about it, they probably already have a, a relative or, or themselves have been had some anxiety about a surgery because of either the wait time or the lack of access or, or just general concern. So there's it's happening already. You're right. The, the future is now. So Well, I'd love to share perhaps as an ending uh, a story of, of a patient because sure. I always think it's um, it's always great to kind of bring it back home and you know, this was uh, several years ago. This was at the start of Proxima. This was a, uh, a patient who was in her late 50s. And unfortunately, she'd suffered uh, complications following a laparotomy for many years. And she was, you know, in the early stages in intensive care. You know, she almost died once or twice and was fed by tubes and really, you know, suffered, had a couple of years of really difficult life. Eventually, when everything settled, you know, she was left with a pretty awful abdominal wall hernia, which means every time she stood up or coughed or moved, this big bulge would, would, would erupt. And, you know, to the point that she was desperate and said, I, I don't want to live like this. This is not the way, you know, I envisaged the best years of my life. So she reached out and said, look, I, I want to stay local with my surgeon. I trust him. I, I'm comfortable with him. I want to stay close to my support network. But I know that there's an expert in this country that could really help my surgeon and deliver the care that is needed. And so we reached out, we obliged, we used Proximy to enable these surgeons to work together. And this patient went home at day five and by wow. the summer was you know, in a swimsuit with her grandkids and, and living her best life. And that patient is my mother. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I think, you know, the, as they say here in England, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And I really truly believe that, and, and I hope that what the story really demonstrates is my true belief in the potential of these solutions and these technologies and the opportunity it can have to give patients a real quality of life that may not have been afforded to them uh, in any other circumstance. It's amazing. And it must be so meaningful to you to have provided that to your mom. Uh, just nothing, nothing, no other reason to start a business than that. So that's a, that's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing it. No, thank you. Nadine, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for uh, joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a real pleasure talking to you too. 
All right, Chris Newmarker, we're wrapping up this much shorter than four hours and three minute episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Now is the time to do what, Chris? Now is the time to tell everybody we got social, you know, we're on social media. You know, you can uh, like, follow, subscribe, but, uh, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker on Twitter at Newmarker. Always happy to, you know, hear, hear some new ideas, get feedback. It'll be awesome. And I am on Twitter as well at MedTechTom. You can find me on LinkedIn as well, Tom Salemi. I am also on the Clubhouse, but we'll, we won't get into that right now. But uh, keep keep your eye out. We'll, we hope to get on back on there soon once Chris is done with this uh, Pharma 50 project. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share it. Tell your friends, your colleagues. Follow us on all social media platforms. You can find Mass Device there. You can find Device Talks there. You can find Medical Design and Outsourcing there. We'd love to have you as part of our journey. And uh, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to the Medtronic Talks podcast as well. We launched that last week. We've got a, a great episode coming up this week or this coming Wednesday. It'll be on surgical robotics. So you don't want to miss that so subscribe 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 and subscribe and you'll be you'll be swimming in fascinating med tech conversation so that's it folks tune in next week we'll have another great episode of the device talks weekly podcast waiting for you take care get vaccinated soon.